Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. This is Melanie Hempy, and welcome, everyone. If you are new, we are so glad you found us. You can thank the person who told you about this podcast because today's podcast is just going to be what you needed right here before school. Everyone else, welcome back. So educating parents about the issues around screens in school has been a huge passion of mine. And the reason why is because I'm not sure, but I think that we were in that first group of experimental uh, students back in 2006 when my son entered ninth grade everybody thought that having a laptop in school was going to really help their grades. So we were part of this experimental process. I'll never forget when they told me that I had to buy a laptop for my oldest son. He already struggled with gaming and I already was a gaming cop mom and I was already setting the kitchen timer and trying to manage all this time. And the day I got the notice that he was going to have to have his very own laptop because at that time he didn't have his own laptop and he didn't have a smartphone. He just had big, huge, you know, desktop computer. But the day that they told us that he was going to have to have this for school and it was mandatory, I will, I, I will just never forget that day. It was the day that I truly lost the battle in my house because I knew it was going to happen. And sure enough, it did. He started gaming so much more. He still was able to have his grades, you know, stay up. He was still an A student. But that laptop, his own personal laptop, was the beginning of this huge spiral for us. As all of y'all know, if you've read any of the things on our Screen Strong site, that he ended up becoming a gamer. He ended up dropping out of college because he just kept gaming all through college and he didn't really quit. So that's our whole story, but I won't get into that today. But I just want to tell you a couple things before we introduce our wonderful guest, Matt Miles, who is the author of Screen School. But I want to just tell you first, because I just want you to know that I feel your pain. I know exactly. And I promised myself I would never forget how hard it is to try to figure out how to manage all this stuff. So I was going to go to the school to talk to the counselor about it because there were some counselors there, there were some teachers there, right after this all had started. And it was already becoming really hard in my house with my son having this school laptop. So I'll never forget walking in, and you have to just picture this with me. I was walking into the hallway. Oh my goodness, I will never forget this. Um, as I walked down the high school hallway, all the way down to the counselor's office, we had an appointment and she was going to tell me what to do. <laughs> but I walked down the hallway and there were all these boys, they were probably ninth and 10th grade boys. And they were sitting with their backs against, you know, the cinder block wall. And I was walking down and they were all on their laptop. And I thought, wow, maybe this is really working. There's studying and it's like recess or break or lunch or whatever because they weren't in class. But no, they weren't studying. They were all playing Call of Duty. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, here it is happening right in front of me on my way to the counselor's office. These boys are playing video games in the hallway at school. So I knew this wasn't going to be good. What I learned is, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it usually is. 
And the other thing I learned was who really in their right mind really thinks that seven hours or six hours a day of screens in a classroom could really be good for kids. But anyway, Matt's going to talk to us about that. And I'm thrilled that we have him with us today. He has been in the trenches with this issue in a high school um, every day for a long time. And he is the brave, let's call him a frontline worker, I guess. And he is um, definitely one of my heroes. So welcome, Matt. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to work with you and your group. Like you said, in 2017, a colleague of mine, Joe Clement, and I wrote the book Screen Schooled. And it's funny, your story about noticing the boys playing video games in the hallway, that's that was that was you know when we when Joe and I got into this in about two thousand I don't know fourteen we started kind of talking about this idea that was the thing that alarmed us the most is hmm. is the silence of the halls the silence <laughs> of the downtime and like you said it was just it was day after day of of you know before kids had laptops before they had uh, smartphones uh, you know you, you always as a teacher always saying quiet quiet guys indoor voices quiet. Because you had a bunch of teens together in a room in a small place and some free time, you know they were doing what teens do. They interact and 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 it was almost overnight that the the halls became eerily silent and 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 and, and like you said, I mean they weren't studying, they weren't, they're not, they're playing games, they're on social, they're they're entertaining themselves like kids would do. Like you'd expect if you handed a kid a toy and said, "Here's a toy." So anyway, that that's kind of what what piqued our interest. We started talking like. I, just didn't seem right. You know, kids weren't really being kids. So that's what got us doing, um, you know, reading anything we could get our hands on about the psychology and the neuroscience behind uh, overstimulation, because we also had noticed a corresponding decline in cognitive function, social, emotional skills, things like that. Just, just to be clear, this, this is different, right? Like Joe's quite a bit older than I am. And and, and this isn't the, the the stereotypical teachers being like, oh, these kids and their devices, right? Like, like it was profound. And, and so that's what got us doing all this reading. And, and, and here we are today. And man, did this, this last year suck. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm, I'm, we're going to dive into this in, in just a second. But if you're just um, listening to uh, Matt right now, Matt, Miles, and Joe Clement wrote the book, Screen Schooled. And Matt was actually on our show back in September of last year. So if you want to dive in a little more to the actual book and all the wonderful things, love this book. It is my favorite book on this topic. It is so well done, so well researched. We went through a lot of the um, information in the book on, on that podcast. So please get back and look at that. But today we are going to just use... Uh, you, Matt, as, as a spy. Okay. We'll just say it right up front. <laughs> We've got some intel that we need from you. We have a bunch of parents in our group. And I mean, my boys are still in high school too. So we're right there in the thick of this, but you are literally on the front line. So we, we just need to talk about this burning hot topic of what happened. I'm going to, I just, I just want to cover a couple things today with you. The first thing is is the virtual learning working? Tell us from your perspective, what happened? Is virtual learning working? Uh, in a very general way, uh, I'd say absolutely not. It's almost like it's oxymoronic at this point, virtual learning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's hard. All right. So so one of the things that gets the touted, as a teacher, we went in this year 
saying, this is going to be hard. You know, how, how can we make the best of this? Yeah. But, but what I would tell you rewinding is that this vision of school is something that ed tech has been pushing for a decade, you know, something like five years ago, our school system, one of the largest school systems in the country was toying with the idea of mandating at least one virtual class uh, for every high school student. So this idea of, of shifting learning from the physical building to a virtual space is something that's been around and, 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 and kind of a vision that's been being pushed. You know, this idea that you can transform education. Um, when you put it on a computer, you can make it, you know, transcend time, space, and manner, right? The kids can learn in any place at any time, however they see fit. And they can be more engaged because they like technology and it's on technologies. It's almost like it's almost like we're going to hook up an IV to their brain, right? That yeah. That's kind of the way I look at it, what they're trying to say. And in the background, you and every other teacher out there and me and probably every other parent is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is like putting a huge, a, a huge bowl of M&Ms on the dinner table and then telling them not to eat the M&Ms before the meat on their plate. You know, it, it doesn't work. Like it doesn't even make sense. And what you just said one second ago about screens represent entertainment to kids. Mm -hmm. Screens yeah. don't represent the library or research. They're on there to be entertained and to play their game. So how, how can we think this is going to work uh, anyway? No, you're absolutely, well, you and I, you know, I, I think a lot of people get that, especially after this, this year of yeah. lockdown, but, but to be honest, most parents have been sold. I mean, there's a lot of money being used to market the educational advantages of technology. I mean, it's, it's a billion dollar industry. So you turn on the television, you see, you know, all these ads showing kids making videos and, and manipulating DNA molecules and doing all these wonderful things. And as a teacher, you're inundated with this message all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear phrases like leverage technology for learning's sake. And, and a, a couple years ago, we, we had to sit in a, uh, uh, an hour long presentation on how to use Twitter in the classroom. And at the end of, uh, at the end of the presentation that the, they showed a, a meme it had a picture of a VHS tape and it said, if you're a teacher and not using social media in the classroom, you're as useless as this VHS taste or something <laughs> like that. Oh my goodness. So, so this message is in the backdrop of what, you know, inspired Joe and I to write it. And, and a lot of people feel like our tone is too strident. We're too alarmist or whatever. And, and really what we're arguing for in the book is that, you know what? There's 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 downsides to uh, almost a purely virtual existence. There there are things yeah. that we are trading in, and I think today a lot of people see that. And you know, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you probably get it. But but your inclination as a parent, if you kind of watched what happened last year, you're like, I don't know if that really worked. I'd say you're absolutely on on the right track. You get it. So what is lost? Just let's go over that really quick. What what is lost when everything shifts over to virtual? classroom. I mean, you got obviously the face-to-face -face and being in the presence of your teacher, which is huge. I mean, it's not, but what else is lost in, from your perspective? What's lost? Okay. So, I mean, where do I begin? Yeah. The, the, the first problem with the idea of virtual education is that it assumes the role of a teacher is merely content delivery, right? Uh -huh. I, I just stand up there and I tell you the information or I somehow convey the information to you. I am the gatekeeper to content. 
And by moving it to virtual, I can put a YouTube video, I can put a link to an article or whatever. And, and that, and therefore that replaces the teacher. And, and for most kids, that's not the role of a teacher. Now, now, again, a tangent. Understand, educational technology is, is primarily promoted by people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, kids who thought Harvard wasn't challenging enough for them, right? Like they didn't need motivation. They didn't need, they had uh -huh. intrinsic drives. And, and that's the kind of people who are selling this idea. And virtual education may work for those kids, kids who are self-driven, they're self-disciplined, they're naturally curious, they're naturally motivated. That's not almost any kid that we deal with in <laughs> the real world. Because teachers do more than deliver, a good teacher, I should say, does yeah. more than deliver content. That face-to-face -face contact, that, that caring, that interaction, all of that is motivation, right? We motivate kids to learn. We keep them on task. We, we help cultivate understanding. Here's another thing. One of the advantages, they'll say, if you, if you give a kid a YouTube video, right, that shows a concept, they don't understand it, they can rewatch it. Where if they're listening to you talk, and they miss a concept, they can't rewind that. So that's a huge advantage. But my point is like, like, have you ever been in a classroom, right? Like, like granted, if I'm talking and you're not listening, you're going to miss something and you can't rewind me. But what can you do? You can raise your hand. You can right. ask me a question. You interact. You can interact, right? Like you say, let's say I say two plus two is four and you're just not getting that. I say two plus two is four. And the kid goes, you know, raise your hand. I, I just, I don't understand that. Well, the rewinding would be like me going, well, two plus two is four, mm -hmm. right? Rewind. Two plus two is four. Like if you don't understand that, I, I can then say, well, here's a, you know, here's a diet, here's pictures, here's a manipulable, here's, here's, here's different ways of looking at how, how do you not understand? That's interactive learning, right? That's what you just said, interaction. So that's another thing that's lost. So you're losing motivation. You're Plus losing you have, I, I just got to interrupt you real quick here. You also lose everybody else's questions. Because yeah. when you're the kid in the classroom that doesn't understand it, maybe you're not going to raise your hand or interact, but all of a sudden your neighbor does, and then you're explaining it to them, and the kid next to him now gets it better. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other, the last thing you, you're going to lose is accountability. All I can tell from a teacher is that you're signed into the program. That's all I can tell. Now, due to privacy concerns, um, our county came out right away and said, you can't make high school kids turn their laptops on or their, their cameras on. I, I can understand that rationale, right? Like some kids, they don't want their house life in it. That's fine. I get it. But immediately kids realize, like zero kids turn their cameras on. Um, and oh and what, what you realize is that by the end of the year, I would ask a question. I, you could do cool things, leverage technology. I could put a poll question up. Uh, my poll questions by the end of the year are, are you here? <laughs> and regularly two thirds of the kids would not respond. Would not so even be there. Not yeah. there. And I can't, I can call on them. No response, right? I can't mark them absent. You know, another thing, tests. How do you give a test in a virtual setting, right? That's something that we could never figure out. The program I was using, I could watch and they didn't know this, but I could watch when they get onto a question and then you could see him toggle off to another screen. I would say every kid was looking up every question. Wow. So the averages on our tests were 
99%. You know, you felt bad for the kid with the B because you're like, oh, this is the only kid actually taking the test. That didn't cheat. Yeah. How do I know that's even the kid taking the test, not the mom or the dad? But it's stuff like that, you know, you lose that accountability. And testing isn't just important for assessing a kid, where they stand, what they learned, what grades should they have. It's important for the kid. It's a tool for the kid to learn that self-quizzing, that preparing. If, if a kid knows he's going to go in a test and he can look up every answer, no problems. Well, he's not going to study, first of all. Right? That's right. He's not even going to look at the material. And, and the way you look up a, t- a question, you just highlight the information, you right-click, Google search, and most of the time it puts the answer in a, in a bold statement in the first you don't even there's no even thinking involved in it's not even like you know i'm gonna flip to the index and look up a concept that thought process is what actually ingrains learning in a normal year for my kids you know we would quiz on the minute miniature units and then do a review and a test and then the tests the concepts in the test would then be reflected in a midterm and then we'd have a test in the final so by the time we got to the final exam or the AP exam, my kids are AP students, they quit self-quizzed on concepts many times. You know, if you look at the psychology of education, it's that that quizzing that actually makes it so that you retain and you can you, you can retain knowledge. That's the mental gymnastics and the having to use that pathway over and over and over and not just being able to get the fact, but to actually know the fact and think a lot of people think learning is just being able to access the right answer without really thinking it through. Yeah, absolutely. It showed. It showed at the end of the year. I just got my AP scores back uh, a couple of days ago and it was, I don't mean to to my own horn, but beep, beep. I'm normally a pretty good teacher yeah. with, with mostly fives and fours. And this year it was it was a total disaster. And 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 not all of that you can blame on, on technology, right? Because most of the kids, they're you know, they norm all these tests anyway. So the AP example I'm referring to. So most kids taking it spend a year on technology also, but our county in particular, because kids were struggling so much, our, our Fs, our number of, so, so they, they started doing things like making it easier for kids. And the more they did to make things easier for kids, understanding that they're in difficult situations, understanding COVID's you know, we're in a pandemic, understand that the system responded by trying to help kids out. And I get that again, but the more that they did, the worse they did, the easier they made it, the more they struggled. We had three times the number of failing grades at semester time than we'd had the year prior. And it only got worse as the year went on. So they had to double down, right? They had to take away things like 0% for not doing things. You'd have to give kids half credit for not doing things and unlimited retakes and, and all this other stuff. And kids still struggled. And it goes back to that point we made earlier is, is without the physical presence of a teacher, a lot of kids don't have that self-motivation and that drive to do well in things that they're not passionate about. Most kids aren't passionate about, you know, reading and writing and civics and math. And, but, but those are skills that are important, but they need to be pushed. And that's, and that's you can't push kids in this setting. No, they're going to crave this low effort, high reward activity. This is the teen brain. That's the definition really of a teen brain. Let's see how I can get around. Let's see how I can do the least amount of work and get by. I mean, and, and you, I love the point you brought up earlier about the tech execs and the Bill Gates out there that, you know, maybe that kind of learning would have worked for them, but that's certainly not the majority of kids and not the majority of the kids in my household or even in this, you know, group that we manage and parents out there in general, 
they know that their kids need to be motivated. I think a lot of the reasons why they're not passionate about school is because they're so passionate about their brand on social media and their scores on their video games and their leader ladders and all that business that, you know, you can only have so much passion. I mean, how can you be passionate about all that and then still be passionate about something hard like school? And especially when virtual learning comes along where you have to be even more engaged, you have to dig even deeper than normal because you don't have, like you said, the teacher face to face. So you said that a couple of these problems that are happening is the motivation, the lack of interaction, and the lack of accountability. Does that pretty much cover it? I think in general, yeah. You kind of just mentioned something. Daniel Kahneman, um, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, has a term he calls the law of least effort. It's a fundamental principle of, of humanity and life in general, is that if you have two things, two ways of accomplishing the same task, an easy way and a hard way, everybody's going to gravitate towards the easy way. Sure. If a kid looks at their task at school as getting an A, and you give them an easy way to do it and a hard way to do it, almost every kid's going to do the easy way. It's called the law of least effort. It's why water rolls downhill the way it does. It's why people do what they do in every facet of life. Of course, it applies to teens doing school. So when you remove that accountability, you make it so that they're disconnected. You remove that motivation. You, you take those three factors. Of course, kids are going to do the least amount of things to get what they perceive as their goal. Their goal is not to learn, right? Their goal is to get an A. Right. And to do it in the least amount of effort and to explain it from a neuroscience, you know, viewpoint, it is a survival skill. It is an intrinsic survival mechanism not to do things the hard way. <laughs> you need to do things the easy way so you will survive. I mean, this is basic. It's there's nothing like wrong with your kid for wanting to do things, you know, the easiest way. We can look at that from our culture and say, oh, they're lazy or they don't care. And really they're not either one of those things. They are doing what they are wired to do for survival. Yeah. They're, they're perfectly rational. They're perfect. Like you said, it, it's an evolutionary necessity, right? Like thinking burns calories. Exactly. Exactly. We we're our whole body's designed to to in a calorie scarce world of the hunter gatherer societies to burn as little calories as possible. That's so yeah, right. like you're absolutely we're, we're not blaming kids. This isn't like all oh, these kids. And no, like, they did what anybody would looking at them from the outside in a rational world say. This is what would happen in the 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 way that we managed COVID. This is what you could expect to happen. And they were exactly right. That's what Yeah, there's happened. no surprises. And I have a, a good friend who's a teacher at college, and she said it was even true for um, the adults because they do a, a lot of adult programs. And so these are like elementary school majors that are coming back to get maybe a math or something. And there was so much cheating there. And these are grown people, but there's so much cheating. And there are these websites where you can upload the test. Like seriously, my friend would write a test, right? I'm sure you've done this. And there are different websites that will literally take that test and then you can buy that test. <laughs> and so she's like, oh my gosh, I'm having to rewrite new tests every single you know quarter. And I mean, how frustrating for a teacher is that? But these, she was dealing with adults, you know, so again, it's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest way out. You think 
that kids are supposed to have all this resilience and they're supposed to have all this character. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with that. When your child is sitting, you know, in your den and they've got their computer open and they're supposed to be on their Zoom, you can't be there with them every second to see what they're doing. And to your point, most of them get right off their camera and they're playing video games. They're certainly not reading books. I can tell you that. I mean, why would they do that? They're actually, uh, from my perspective and all the parents I've talked to, so many kids were either sleeping because they were up gaming all night or whatever, or they were on social media and texting their friends all through the school day. And that's probably what happened more. It's it's funny you mentioned that. So I one of the classes I teach psychology, and we do a, a large unit on sleep and, and things. So I normally do a sleep survey, and and this year I I, I polled all my students, said you know how many of you are getting in the, the same was true as last year during the first couple of months of the pandemic. You guys are, are going to school last time. You're you're having that you can wake up later. Like how many of you are getting more sleep? Uh, and the answer was uh, I think two out of ninety students reported getting more sleep than they did pre pandemic. One of the two girls said, you know, her mom limits her screen time. She said, I'm so bored. There's nothing to do. So around eight, eight or nine o'clock, I just go to bed because there's nothing to do. You know, all the other kids getting way like significantly less hours of sleep. And by the end of the year, they're sleeping through class or they're they're at the very least. And, and they'll tell you, I try to build, even virtually try to build relationship with kids. And they're, and they're normally happy to talk about it. They'll, they'll tell you they sleep through class or they at the very least do school through their, from their bed with their windows, their, you know, the windows covered with black quilts and keep it dark. And that really speaks to another issue that we saw, you know, one of the big buzzwords in education right now is, is the, the discussion of equity. And one of the fears when you went to, a, a virtual war, a setting that a lot of students without Wi-Fi or laptops of their own would really fall behind because they didn't have more technology. You know, and our school system provides laptops for every kid anyway. So I don't, I'm not sure why they were so, but the, the ideas of, of Wi-Fi. And, all. and one of the things that going back, you know, there's a 2010 study by, done by Duke where they went to poor communities, primarily minority uh, lower socioeconomic communities, and they they bought them all laptops, and they gave them state of the art laptops to have at home to do their homework. They got them Wi Fi, they got them connected. They they bridged the digital divide was a, a phrase we've heard over and over. And we spent billions to do. What they found in 2010 was that after introducing the computers to these homes, there was significant and profound declines in reading and math scores, the two things they were measuring. So not only did bridging the digital divide not improve scores, it actually significantly declined their scores. And when you look at reasons why that was, it's a lot like you were saying earlier about when your son got a laptop. You know, if you go to poor communities, you go to lower socioeconomic communities historically, those are the communities where the parents are working, right? They're, mm-hmm. Those are the parents who didn't stop working because they were hourly employees or, or, or whatever. And, and they could, they didn't have the luxury of sitting next to their student while they were at school. Right. And, and what happens when, when that goes on, right? Like, like I'm very fortunate, you know, my wife and I could both work remotely and my son was in, he's, you know, he's in kindergarten and good God, look, it, <laughs> You, you had to be sitting next to him the whole time. You couldn't walk away for two seconds. Every second, she's like, pull out this. And, you know, a kid can't read. 
you know, he's in kindergarten, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. So she's trying the best she could, but it, it yeah. necessitated an, an adult. And he was on there as a five-year-old. He was on for eight hours a day doing things. And, and luckily, you know, my wife and I could spend some time and we have, we both have, our parents are in the area. So they would take over days at a time, you know, but a lot of people in this country aren't fortunate enough to have that. And, and that's why we see fast forward 2021, bridge the digital vibe, get everybody devices, all this stuff. Why is it that our F's triple, especially in those communities is because they didn't have the adult there helping them through. They didn't have those motivators. You know, you saw the same. And, and that's true too of, of upper socioeconomic kids who, who parents just let them go upstairs and do it class from their bed. They're in the same disadvantage. I have that study. If anybody here listening wants it, you can just email us at team at ScreenStrong. And I've got the study on that. I've read that study and I've actually seen some more information on that whole bridging the digital divide. And you're absolutely right. The poor kids get poor when it, when it comes to education, when they're handed devices. And it's heartbreaking because I really believe that the poor socioeconomic kids are going to be have screen, you know, they're going to have screens thrown at them and the rich kids or more well-to-do families are going to be able to hire tutors. I mean, this is where I think it's headed where, you know, either they're going to be homeschooling, they're going to be doing whatever they can with resources that they have to, fill in the gap, but the poor population isn't going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to do it. So we're really hurting, you know, the weak kids get weaker. And I think that's what happens when we bring all this technology into the classroom in general. I mean, before we were just worried, you know, Matt, about the basic stuff we had to worry about, like you had to worry about all day, kids being on their cell phones, kids being in your classroom, but still not paying attention because they're playing Fortnite during math class. But now it's gotten so much worse that now I bet you're just wishing for those problems again, right? right? To get back in the classroom, at least to have some eyeballs there on you. But let's just talk for just a minute about what's going to happen this year. So we've had a whole year of this, I don't know, mismanagement of all this, all these screens. And, and I don't mean that negatively. It just is what it is. Um, I'm not trying to be judgmental. It, it was mismanaged. I'm not saying anybody can really be at fault or that there was a way around it, but it obviously really didn't work out. So now this year coming up here next month or this month, depending where you are trying to get back to school, I think a lot of schools are going to come back. Do you think there's still going to be a lot of virtual classes I mean, what do you think it's going to be? And, and what can you tell parents? Like, how do we prepare for this? Because some of us feel like our kids have like missed a year. The good news is almost everybody's missed a year, right? So, yeah, so kids are, we're all are, behind. Yeah. Are, are, are relatively <laughs> fine. I, that's a really hard question to answer. I think it's going to vary from school district to school district, state to state a lot. And it's the policies, you know, and again, I don't want to, like you were just saying, I don't want to be critical of county policy or mm-hmm. educational policy in general. You know, the pandemic was what it was. You know, how else do we handle it? I don't know. You could have done things outside, whatever. I don't know. But it, it is what it is. It's right. what we did. It was the best. We got to move forward. Yeah. I think I think the things that I'm, I'm looking forward to this year is our, our school district is is pushing for five days a week in person. Seeing kids kids need to be back out of the house. They need to be interacting with people. They, their social-emotional health needs it. Their education needs it. It's it required. You know, for, for the kids who, who have a legitimate health concern, There'll be alternatives, but I mean, they're making it 
they're not making it appealing. I, my fear is that a lot of parents are seeing their kids, quote unquote, thrive. And when they when they say thrive, they, they mean typically one of two things. One, their grades are really high because virtual school is just really easy. And they, they looks like on paper, their kids could get in Harvard. So let me keep them on this track. I think there are definitely parents out there that would, wouldn't mind having that as their track. I don't know. The other thing is, is, and you hear this a lot too, about people who talk about this year as a success and, and they always mention, well, my kid's really shy in class and he or she thrives because uh, they, could, they could type questions and interact in a way that they didn't feel so anxious. And one of the things I, I point out is, is, first of all, very few kids interacting in virtual settings. There, there were maybe a handful of kids uh, that would turn on their mic. Some would, would type. I wasn't getting flooded with response. I don't know where all of these, these kids with social anxiety were. <laughs> they still have social anxiety is what you're saying. Yeah, but, but the other the thing is, and this is what Joe and I are looking into right now, is, is this idea of accommodating. So you have a kid with social anxiety and they don't like speaking in front of class. Is it best for them to stay in their room typing on a computer? One of the worst ways you treat anxiety is giving into that anxiety. You know, right. the, the anxiety is very treatable and it almost always involves exposure to the things that make you anxious. Right. So right. what's best for a kid with social anxiety is not being in their room and, and typing their response. It's, it's being, believe it or not, in a classroom. Now, granted, you give them cognitive behavioral skills. You teach them how to cope with stress and, and breathing exercises and work through their disastrous thoughts. You, I mean, you give them the skills to work through it, but, but then you don't allow them to continue to withdraw that's one of the worst things you could possibly have. And now, you know, my kids will always joke. We all have social anxiety. Just right. The number of kids are worried about being around other kids for the first time in a long time. That's making me nervous just listening to you talk about it. I mean, the, the antidote to stress from a, from a medical standpoint is being around other people. That is the antidote to it. That's how we cure it. It's when we get in isolation that we get more stressed and more anxious. So it is just a fine line because parents, like you said, they they want to sort of coddle and say, oh no, he's he's so anxious. This is better for him to be at home. But the reality is sooner or later at some point he has to work through it, like you said. And being in school is such a natural way to do that. We need human beings. We are not designed biologically to live in isolation. In fact, we know that isolation is like the worst form of punishment. It will cause death. You can't, you can't live in isolation. I think that's really interesting. That a lot of parents see the silver lining and they see, oh, he's got better grades and he didn't have to work through the drama, you know, that is at school. But at some point you do have to learn how to work through the drama and then you have to come home and be away from the drama and not get on your social media. And um, you get a whole lot more drama and a whole lot more anxiety when you are on social media and phones and screens and all that than you do by being face to face. Yeah. And I, and I don't know what, I don't have an idea of what percentage of parents are out there have that mentality. I know when I read opinion op-eds about trying to put a positive spin on this year, those are the ideas you read the most. But, and again, there's many factors for this, but you know, our students had the choice of coming back to school uh, or staying virtual. About two thirds of our kids at the beginning of the year in the fall 
2020, two thirds of the kids said they wanted to be in school. Yeah. Almost immediately went to a purely virtual thing all the way through February. We went back in February where things are starting to look better. Vaccines yeah. are out. People are getting vac- vaccinated. The numbers are starting to go down. So things are looking better. We went back and said, who still wants to come back to school? And what we saw was uh, that number dwindled to maybe five. I, you know, we, we might have out of our, our school has a couple thousand kids in it and we might have like two or 300 in a building at a given time. Well, and that's, that's just because it becomes a habit at that point and you don't want to go, you don't want to get up, you, you know, it's that path of least resistance again. That's so sad. That's really sad. So what do we do with the parents? We have a, a Facebook group, Screen Strong Families is the name of it. We have a lot of parents in there that are trying to get ready for the school year. We have had a wonderful, very low, low tech summer here. Just everyone is enjoying their kids and we're putting all these things on hold. We're, we're pausing the video games and the social media. We're just putting a big delay on all that. But now we have to decide what we're doing. And, and I know, you know, it's really hard because we just got our kids back. You know, I'm speaking collectively from this whole group. We're feeling, feeling like, you know, we're back to having this wonderful balance of using screens only for a good tool and not the toxic part of it. But now school's here. And so now we have a fourth graders with tablets again and, you know, kindergarten. I, I had a mom call me two weeks ago to say, can you talk to the principal at my school? They're giving all the kindergartners tablets. I'm like, oh, no. So uh, what do you tell? What What is your suggestions for this new school year? Should Should these parents write a letter to the administrator? Does that help? Should they talk with teachers face-to-face? Should they ask for accommodations and say, you know, this digital thing, I just want to put it on hold. Can my kids get textbooks? How do you advocate for your child? I mean, you are new, you know, you've you've had tips on that, I know, in the past. But now with, with all this last COVID year on top of it, how do we do this? What is the most effective way to advocate for our kids if we want to keep this kind of low tech thing going? It's it's going to be tricky. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if, if you know, my, my hope is, and here's where I, I have glimmers of optimism is, and I've, I think I said this back in September when we talked, I, I looked at this last year of the 80s style parent who caught their kids smoking and they said, oh, you know what? You want to smoke here? Smoke the whole pack. And they made them smoke the whole pack till they're sick. Yeah. That was kind of my idea of, of what this year would be like. You want you want ed tech, you know that was the inkling for all these years. You want ed tech? Here's all the ed tech you can handle. And I think it got the it finally exposed for what it is. It was it was a huge failure in the county I work. Yeah, and you know you could read about it in the Washington Post, and and it took us months to get up and running. It kept falling apart in in the the spring of 2020. And there was all these promises about how it would transform education, and and education was an absolute joke last year. So. So I, I'm optimistic in that I think we've, we've now seen it for what it is. As, as educators, we've seen it for what it is. As parents, we've seen it firsthand. This is the thing you've been promising me would transform education all the years. And this is, you know, this is terrible. So advocate for your kids. I mean, obviously, if schools shut down, what are they going to do? I don't know. Yeah. My hope is that we're moving beyond that. And as a parent, I would absolutely incur, write my – Tell, email my teacher, my kid's teacher and say, look, 
He did this all last year. He's over the laptop. I, he needs a low tech option. Advocate is, is I guess, and if enough parents push back, and this is the perfect time for it too, yeah. because if you get a movement of parents saying enough of the ed tech already, we, or just technology in general, our kids need a break from the screens. They need to be with people. I think a general movement like that to adopt this complete inundation of screens as part of an educational move. I think this is the time to have more of a general push about it. Because everybody's fresh off of the disaster and it's always going to be easier to act right when you've just experienced something that didn't really work. I think another thing that just popped into my head when you were talking is um, it's up to parents to do what's in their control. So what do you have control over? You have control over not giving your kids a smartphone for one thing. We know kids and teens don't need smartphones. They they think they do, of course, and there's a million reasons why we can come up with why. But there are also a million and one reasons why they don't need them. So now more than ever, I would suggest that parents just disconnect these smartphones. They have done so much to take so much time away from our kids. And even, even in homework, settings. Uh, we do the challenge in high schools and grade schools and whatnot. It's the seven days without your smartphone and social media and video games. And they, the kids write an essay. And in almost every single essay that comes back, the child is explaining or the teenager is explaining how much faster they got their homework done because they did not have the interruptions of a smartphone. And they're just like realizing that. So as a parent, I think it's really it's a really good thing for you to do what's in your control. That is one thing. The other thing that's in your control, of course, is when they do get home from school, that they don't have four hours of video games lined up for the afternoon because they have already had all this technology and screen time during the classroom. These are just really basic common sense things. The other thing that we did, I'm a perfect example of this back in middle school, one of our kids really was struggling in a class, come to find out um, he was studying for the test. He didn't understand anything. And we realized that that he had not even gotten hold of the textbook. Like he was trying to do everything online. And so um, the night before his test, when we were figuring all this out, we ran over to the school. It was still early enough to where we could go in there and get a textbook, literally sat on the couch with him that night and read the chapter with him, or at least had him read it. And we, my husband was just kind of sitting there with him. I mean, Matt, it was just amazing. This whole, you know, just being in the presence and, of another person trying to help him with something. And then all of a sudden he's, he said, mom, as soon as I read it, I get it. Like he got it, but he couldn't get it online and he wasn't reading it the same way online. And so you may very well have a child like the majority of kids who read much better and comprehend much better in a textbook on paper where they can see the little boxes and turn the pages and see the paragraphs, all of that experiential part of learning and reading is what helps that deep learning happen. Yeah. And, and that's something Joe and I've always said, it, you know, you can control what you can control. Like at yeah. our school district, they're so all about ed tech. If you, if you go in and say, my kids, they're going to make life hard on you. If you say my kid doesn't want a laptop, but what can you control? Well, what about at home? You know, right. I, I want my kids homework offline. That's yeah. not an unreasonable ask for a teacher. For a lot of our subjects, we've transitioned to online textbooks 
And like you said, there's warehouses of research out there that show that there's a lot more knowledge retention from and comprehension from a physical paper book than a digital book for a variety of reasons. But it is what it is. Request your teachers probably have a book somewhere in the building yeah. that the the kid can take home. They do, yeah. We do it all the time. We accommodate all kinds of kids' needs. Um, it, it's not unreasonable. If you email me and you say, my kid, I just, I don't want them on screens. I, you know, granted, we all know my bias, but I, yeah. I would find a book for the kid to take home. You know, start with the teacher. Now, my, my kid, we're trying to really cut back on screen time. Is there a way we can move his, his homework to uh, some type of physical paper? You know, mm -hmm. and, and those are like smaller steps towards controlling Screen. But it, yeah, go ahead. Well, it just really, they're small steps, but they make a huge difference for your child. And this is where I think parents get overwhelmed and they think, well, there's all these kids and then all this stuff is happening and my kid's going to be left out and they're going to be the only weird one. Don't even worry about that. You have to focus on what tomorrow looks like for your child. And if that means that you get on eBay today and go find the textbook, then you get the textbook. I'm promising you this, that I do. I promise that it will help. It will help more than you realize. Do not throw the towel in and do not give up. And don't worry about the big battle. Try to do something about tomorrow. And don't worry about six months from now or three months from now. We get really overwhelmed, Matt, when we do that. And yeah. it's really hard to say, well, my kids can be the only one. Don't worry about that either. Let them be the only one. There's a ton of research that says that the popular kids in school end up to be complete failures in life in general. So we don't need our kids to be the most popular. The Muppets. Good for them. <laughs> exactly. Being a teacher, though, I think what I mean, would you recommend that the parent come in and have a meeting with you, have a phone call with you? What is the best thing to do? District to district, teacher to teacher, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary widely. So I, I would always start with the teacher and, and, and just email them a very reasonable request that, that you are trying to limit screen time or what, what things can, where can we meet, right? Yeah. And I can understand as a teacher, if I make a lesson where my kids are having to log into a, a testing app or, or maybe it's easy for me to print off a version and run that. Maybe, and I can do that. And maybe, maybe it's a little hard. Mm -hmm. uh, so I get where it's going to vary from less and less, but it, but I would approach the teacher specifically in a general way. I, I'm generally trying to keep my kid offline. Can we move homework offline? Can, right. can he, he or she be on paper and pencil as much as possible? And if you're not getting any support, then escalate it and then escalate it, right? The principal. So start with the teacher. And, you know, I have found that many times that really takes care of about 80% of it right there. Cause if they know that you care, they're going to be all about it. They're going to be, you know, and we, we do that. Um, especially when our kids were a little bit younger, we printed everything off, you know, invest in some ink. It, that's just what we have to do. And they did so much better with their homework when it was printed off. They did tons better. Of course, not being distracted with a smartphone. I can't stress that enough. And, and Matt, this is a side note, but could, could you just talk about just for a second, we keep, getting questions about, well, my kid needs a smartphone because teachers are requiring that they get on social media for these certain apps. I, I say absolutely no way. I, 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 I put my foot down on that with my kids. There's no way they're having a smartphone so they can be on a group me or something with their teachers. We have group me from our sports stuff and everything on our parent phones and that works just fine. 
since, I mean, I just think it's a really bad idea for teachers, and I am very biased on this. I feel like it's a very, very bad idea for teachers to have direct communication with students like like that. I, I just think parents should always be on it, and they don't need to have a smartphone just so they can have group me. Well, yeah. For, for, first off, most counties don't allow direct teacher-to-student contact via social media. It, you have to always take what your kids tell you is with a grain of salt, right? They Good they point. Want, they want a smartphone. <laughs> so like, my teacher makes me like they may very well have like a remind me app or another type of app. Uh, I can't imagine now. No, maybe I can't imagine a teacher. If it here's at the bottom of the line, we're just teachers, mm-hmm. right? We don't get to dictate your policies at home. You don't let your kids on social media. That's there cannot be a teacher that that contradicts that, right? They cannot push back against what you do at home. We don't. That's not something we get to do. You want to limit your kids' screen time. You want to keep them off social media. No school, in my opinion, has the right to contradict that. So, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. That's where I would, if if that were a requirement, I could a hard pass on that. I would, I would take that up with the teacher immediately. He's not doing this. And if he got any type of punitive outcome from that, I would bring it right up. I wouldn't mind bringing it up to superintendent. Like that's where I would draw the line. Uh, I would first talk with the teacher and try to get to the bottom line of really what they're saying. I wouldn't be accusatory because like I said, you know, I, I, (laughs) it's funny. (laughs) I had parents one time accused me of, of telling their kids they had to be on social media. And then it was, it was totally made up you, of all saying, people. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, I don't think you know my style. Um, definitely not. <laughs> well, let me just interject here. Parents, by the way, just a little alert here. Kids lie. They lie. That's part of being a kid. It's part of development. They're not bad kids, but they make things up and they lie. And if it's your first kid, you, you're not going to believe me that you're just not. And that's okay. <laughs> You'll believe me when it comes to your second kid. The other thing too is, I mean, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of I, when I grew up is in the '90s. It was a starter jacket, right? Like if if you didn't have a starter jacket with a team on it, a football team, you were not in the ins. And almost every kid had one, except for me and my brother. We had a Costco brand, like the ugliest jacket in the world, right? <laughs> to- totally pride. You you would never think as a parent, like, oh, what color my kid's jacket is matters, but today it's absolutely a spy. And not only is it like the idea of clothing or something makes you in, it's how they meet, right? It's, it's where they meet. They're virtually, if they don't have a, a smartphone, they're not only not cool, but they're, they're left out, right? They're, they're isolated. And, And that's sad, but that drive to get a smartphone is, is much stronger for, for kids than I think we realize. I don't, I don't know how to make that compromise. I feel bad. Sometimes I look at, I look at the kids in the uh, audience of the talks or I just feel bad for them. Yeah. You feel bad for them. But listen, okay. Go back to what you were saying about the path of least resistance and all this stuff. So when you shut one doorway, another doorway opens and this is what happens. We are dumbing down our kids when we hand them all the stuff and say, you are not capable of being social or figuring out another solution. What happens is they find a way to get together and they get together in physical settings. It happens all the time. If kids don't have smartphones, we have a bunch of kids in our group that don't have smartphones. Of course, none of the kids in my house have a smartphone. We are more social in this ages of my kids right now in high school than any of my other kids that 
had trouble with screens. They are so much more social, Matt, because you're right. They do want to get together and they have to get together. And that's part of their developmental stage that they're in. So they find a way to get together and it's not on the phone and it's a hundred times more fun. And we always have lots of food and there's always lots of fun things to do. And I mean, we even had a baseball tournament two hours away this weekend that their little group of friends surprised them, drove up there to be with them. I mean, isn't this what you want in your kid's life? You want those kinds of friendships. And so if you give them a smartphone and they're taking it to school and it's meeting all their, quote, social needs, they're not going to get their needs met another way. Why would they be motivated to do that? You've just taken away all their motivation to get together with their friends. Going back to what I've been saying, where the optimism comes in, like there, there's, we're primed for this pushback against the path we were headed. We're headed down towards a, a purely virtual existence. We're headed down towards moving all of our relationships to an online setting. And it, we were, we were giving up real life experiences a little bit at a time. And then boom, overnight, we got a full dose of it. And yep. it, it's the perfect time to talk to your kid and say, look, and I, and I think it's coming. I've been saying a, a renaissance in human interaction. And I think, I think it's, I think your kid would agree. I, I think they're going to be a little bit anxious and that's fine. You got to push them back out. And, and I'm encouraged. I'm a, I'm a football coach and, and we're about to start up next week and we've been having workouts all summer. And man, have we had record turnout for every, every single day we have, you know, the school, our size, we're having 80 kids come out wow. every single day. And it's, it's funny. Some of the kids you see their moms just kicking them out the door, but they're there. I don't know if it's the parents saying, get the hell out of the house or the kids are wanting, but they're there, they're interacting. There's, you know, there's no kids on their phones. I mean, they're, they're so they're awkward and they're weird. Uh, they're socially maladjusted, but, <laughs> but they're having a great time being with other people. And I think it's, I think it's, it's okay to encourage that it's time. And I think, I think you're never going to find a better opportunity to push your kid away from their cell phone, to push them into real life existence and push your school away from uh, virtual education. I, I always say like, if you have a, a Twitter class and make teachers do training on Twitter, what teacher in their right mind is going to go to that next year? You know, <laughs> if you tell me, Oh, there's this, this conference yeah. on ed tech, I hope yeah. it's empty. What yeah. what teacher wants more of this crap? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. We love you, Matt. We love you. We love you. We love all of your wisdom and your, your trenches approach here. You are definitely in the trenches and we're out of time. But can you offer a final word of encouragement for our audience who's out there who's really been devastated with this and really struggling, maybe not devastated, but just throwing the talent. So we don't want to throw the talent. Um, this, this virtual year has been a gift in the sense that now we know that it doesn't work like we knew it didn't, it didn't work and we need to do a U-turn here. So give us a final word of encouragement for the, for the audience. Yeah. Your kids are, your kids are uh, shockingly resilient and, and mm-hmm. most kids are, and they're probably a little beat up, a little bit shook up from, from a year of isolation. And they've probably got way too much screen time, like all of us. Yeah. Uh, but, but like you said, it's a time for a U-turn. It's, it, it's been an eye opening experience and it's made us appreciate what we miss in the real world. It's a little bit of reflecting on that. And then, and then don't be afraid to push your kid back out there. 
they're going to have anxiety. They're going to be, you know, timid. They're going to be wanting to cling on at the first day of school, the first day of tryouts or whatever, kick them the hell out of the car and, and move on because <laughs> they need it. They need to get back out there. They need to interact with people. They need time in, in the real world. And I think once they experience it again, it may take a week or two. Uh, I think they're, they're going to have a new outlook on life. They're going to be excited and, and you may not have to play, but I think it's time for those discussions. Look at what you missed. Have them reflect on, you know, what they gave up this last year. And and I think you're going to be surprised. I think I think it's been a, a blessing in disguise. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for that. That that whole motivation to do the right thing, know what you need to do. And you're right that kids, you know, will get over it. I know parents in our group, we have this challenge that we do. And then we, we help parents pull back on all this stuff and they get so worried about it. And the first few weeks, so, you know, it's really hard, but it doesn't take long and kids figure it out. And ultimately they want their parents to set boundaries. They want their parents to care. And this is certainly one way that we can really care about our kids when we really limit the exposure they're getting to toxic screens and, and focus on the good things in life. So thank you so much for helping us see that a little more clearly today, Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If if you have any specific questions regarding this topic for um, the co-author of Screen School, Joe Clement, will also be on our podcast this month. So please email any other questions that you may have to team at screenstrong.com, or you can post them in our Facebook group, which is Green Strong Families. Um, this topic we will be focusing on the whole month of August. And of course, anytime you can come in there and ask questions and you'll get some wonderful responses from the parents. So thanks again so much, Matt, for your time. And I hope that you all enjoyed listening today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends. And head over to the website to donate and learn more about our Screen Strong Challenge, which is our one-week start to help get your kids off their toxic screens. Make sure to join that Facebook group that I talked about and get support from other parents just like you. Remember, we've got your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd, and stay strong. Thank you.